If you'll turn to Revelation chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 12 through 21. It's the last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Revelation verse by verse. And we are at this great battle called the Battle of Armageddon. Now, as you've noticed down here, there is a battle going on. And this is representing the battle, the great battle, not what you may have thought. Not the Packers and the Vikings, okay? But the great and last battle that we see in the end, the ultimate battle of all battles. But here's the question. Whose side are you on? You see, there is no neutral ground, according to the Bible. Let's read our passage, Revelation 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a 100 pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail. Because the plague was so terrible. In our passage, we see three responses to God's wrath. His final bowls of wrath. As you, as you know, we've been reading in, verse, in chapter 16, we have the seven final bowls of his wrath. And so we see now three responses. And the first one is Satan's response. We see this in verses 12 through 14 as well as 16. And that is the battle against God, thinking that he can win, bringing this great army against God. We see that the army comes from the east, okay? Uh, Which way is north, south, east, and west? Which way is east? That way? Okay, so maybe if we turn it like this. These are the bad guys, okay? Right? Bad guys, good guys. The good guys have the cannon. That's how you know. All right. So... Coming from the east, if you, uh, first of all, they came from the east. Look at verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. The Euphrates River is a natural boundary uh, border between the east and the west. We've already seen this back in chapter 9, if you remember, the army of 200 million that come from the east. Uh, we'll see it again, this whole this battle, the Battle of Armageddon in chapter 19, which reveals to us that the book of Revelation is not 
completely chronological. It seems that what happens is he brings us right to the end, then he goes back and further information brings us right to the end, then comes back and then brings us right to the end again. And so we see this battle referenced where they are crossing the Euphrates River. Uh, But notice verse 14, the end of verse 14, it says, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. So here we see all of the armies gathering together against God's people. Probably what we're seeing here is the climax of a series of military uh, events described in Daniel 11, 40 through 45, as well as Zechariah 14, which we'll turn to in a little bit. But we see in our passage they came from the east and they are demonically inspired. Verse 13, then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And they are demonic, demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Here we see they are demonically inspired. We see the unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And they will even use signs and wonders, it says here, to deceive people. We've seen this already with the warnings of don't be deceived by the false prophets. A warning that we received from the very, in the very beginning of the Bible in Deuteronomy. We see in thir- chapter 13, 1 through 3, God says that even if someone comes along and predicts the future accurately and even performs miracles, do not listen to them if they lead you away from the one true God, Yahweh. And so we see this, that they will be doing this and deceiving many people. But one of the things that we want to be aware of when we, in light of all this, is that there is a spiritual realm with angels and demons. See, in our Western world, we typically think physically and we forget the spiritual realm. Maybe we come to church every now and then, tip our hat, but we live our lives for the most part as if there is no spiritual realm. But there is, and it is just as real as the physical realm. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's the truth. Our enemy is not physical. That means the people in this plan- on this planet are not our enemies. As much as they might be against us, and as we see in this battle coming against the people of God, We need to recognize that the vast majority of the world is under the deception of Satan. They're being led like puppets. And our hearts should go out to them. And we don't treat them as enemies. The real enemy is the devil and his forces. There is a spiritual realm. And there's a right way and a wrong way to fight against this spiritual realm. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. We see a a helpful training for us to help us remember that the fight is a spiritual fight. And he says in chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter, three, chapter 10, verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish 
strongholds. We fight with God's weapons, the spiritual weapons. We fight with the truth, with truth and love. And that's how we're called to live our lives. Sharing the truth, because the truth is what sets people free, but doing it in love, and so we the truth and love with the word and the spirit. So the Bible and the Holy Spirit directing our steps. That's how we fight this battle. But there is a spiritual realm with angels and demons, and we better recognize that truth. And secondly, Satan is in control of the world. As we look at our passage here, he's clearly with this unholy trinity is leading the armies to attack God's people at the very end. And we see this, that Satan is leading them because Satan is in control of the world. But it's not just at this time. In a sense, he's been in control since the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. Here we see a truth back in the time of John's day. He wrote this probably around 90 A.D. And in 1 John... Chapter 5, verse 19, it says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's the way reality is. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. And the evil one's plan from the very beginning, we see it with the Tower of Babel, we've been seeing it throughout the Bible, God's, Satan's plan is globalism to unite all of the people against God's people. And that's what we've been seeing as we've been walking through the book of Revelation, this plan of globalism. Listen, there is no middle ground. Whose side are you on? Now, that is Satan's response, the battle against God. But tucked away in this passage, interestingly, Oh, I forgot about the last part there. They will fight the last battle in Israel. Uh, So after verse 15, look at verse 16. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So we see here that they will fight the last battle in Israel. Armageddon, that's literally the the Mount of Megiddo, uh, speaking of the the mountains that are surrounding, but also the Valley of Megiddo, known as also called the Valley of Jezreel, um, or the... uh, you know, the valley uh, or the plain of Esdralon. There's some other names for this particular place. It's kind of a fascinating place. Several major battles have taken place on this particular uh, part of land throughout history. We have uh, the battle in 15th century B.C. where Egypt, Pharaoh Thutmose III, and a coalition of Megiddo and Kadesh rulers were, uh, had a major battle. We know in 609 B.C., Egypt's army and Judah's king Josiah battled in this particular area. And interestingly, in 1918, uh, in World War I, the Allied troops led by General Edmund Allenby and the defending Ottoman Empire fought in this particular valley. Uh, so it is an area that is uh, familiar with warfare. And here we see it will be the place of the last battle. Uh, just a little sidelight, though. Uh, we are taking a group of people to Israel. 
and this coming summer. And in that, uh, we actually will get to see this valley. We'll be up on Mount Carmel where Elijah, you know, did his stuff. And, uh, and you can see the whole valley all the way over. And you look at it and you're just like, that's where the last battle is going to take place. It is truly um, amazing, an amazing sight, especially when you realize this. The Israeli Air Force has a military base underneath the valley. That's fascinating, isn't it? Underneath the valley. I, I uh, typed out a, a quote here that I wanted to read to you. It is no wonder then that on the floor of the valley, the Israelis built a military base with secret underground runways, hangars, and bunkers. It is hard to imagine, but it is true. You can see this secret base in operation, especially on Wednesdays when the Israeli Air Force runs their drills. The F-16s land on the floor of the valley and then literally disappear underground. And that, that's just the concept of an underground runway at Armageddon is enough to blow you away, so to speak. All right. So they will fight the battle in Israel, and we see this, this amazing strength. And I want you to turn to Zechariah, because also in Zechariah, he's describing this last battle. And so we're going to first read verses 1-9, Zechariah chapter 14. We'll read verses 1 through 9, and then we'll finish the, the next section of it later in the message. So look at Zechariah chapter 14. Verses 1 through 9, describing this last battle. He says, The day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured and the houses ransacked and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley. This is due to the major earthquake that we saw in Revelation. With half of the mountain moving north and half moving south, you will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Here, if you remember, in the book of Revelation, at least the best scenario that we can see from the book of Revelation, remember in chapter 14 we saw the rapture. That was a description of two harvests. First, the harvest of God's people, and then the harvest of the grapes of God's wrath on the, bat, on the, the evil forces, which is what we're seeing in the bowls of God, final bowls of God's wrath. So if you can just picture it, so uh, what we see is at the end, not at the beginning, but at the end, so God's people apparently are going through much of the tribulation, but at the very end, Jesus comes in the clouds, and then he, the trumpets blast. We are all raptured to meet him. He pours out the final bowls of his wrath, probably in a very short period of time, and then comes down with his people, the holy ones. That's us, okay? And comes down and sets the Israelites, those who still have not put their trust in Christ. Many will have already put their trust in Christ. They, of course, are already raptured, but others will be Protected by Jesus is what we're seeing in this scenario. Verse 6, 
On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be, no, one, there will be one Lord and His name, the only name. That's good news. <laughs> His name, the only name. So Jesus comes back. Now, this is all going to take place at the end in this particular area in Israel where the battle of Megiddo and also an attack on Jerusalem, the city of Israel. Now, that is Satan's response. I want to read something from uh, Stephen Rummage, his uh, commentary on Zechariah on this very passage. He gives an illustration and then a point. He says, One evening... I was walking our little Yorkshire terrier down the sidewalk. Joey weighs at most six pounds, and he lives by this motto, love all people, hate all dogs. (laughs) Every time we take him out, we have to be on the lookout for other dogs because Joey goes crazy, barking and trying to attack. On this particular evening, as I was walking, I heard a lady yell from her driveway, come back here. I looked to my left and saw a little white poodle running away from this lady toward Joey and me. Joey started barking furiously. I reached down and picked up Joey in my arms. As soon as I did, that other dog ran up and nailed me right in the leg. His bite broke the skin and drew blood. Then our attacker ran back to the lady in the driveway who apologized profusely. On the way back home, I looked down at my little Yorkie and said... Always remember, Joey, I got bit for you. That could have been you, but I took the hit. Joey didn't seem to be all that impressed by my sacrifice. He just kept walking and wagging his tail, but I do think he knows somehow that his safety simply depends on his closeness to me. As long as he's with me, he knows I will do everything I can to protect him. And here's what the Bible says about you and your God. Your safety does not depend on your distance from danger. There will be times when the path that God has for you will take you into dangerous, difficult, tragic, and even hurtful circumstances. But your safety does not depend on your distance from danger. It depends on your nearness to your God. At the Battle of Armageddon, when danger will encircle God's people, when they will be attacked and brutalized by Satan's forces in ways that are beyond our imagination, the Lord Jesus will show up and take the hit for them. He will fight the battle for them, and in the same way, He will fight for us today. The cross of Jesus Christ has already proved that fact conclusively. When Jesus died on the cross for our sin, He bore the brunt of every attack that Satan has to offer, and He came out of the tomb on the third day victorious. We can praise the Lord because we share in his victory. Now that is Satan's response. And then in verse 15, kind of tucked away in this passage, we see the Christian response. If you notice in verse 15, kind of as an aside, it says, Look, I come like a thief. 
Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. This is the third beatitude of seven beatitudes found in the book of Revelation. Notice it's being shared right here at the very end at the battle of Armageddon. And he says, I come like a thief. This idea that he comes like a thief with when many people will not be aware and not prepared is found in many places in the scriptures. As Matthew 24, 43 is one example when Jesus was sharing what the end times will be like. But specifically and especially, I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses 1 through 11, we see the most detailed explanation of this idea of Jesus at when he returns, that it will be like a thief in the night. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5. This is right after First Thessalonians chapter 4, which spoke of the rapture. So in the context, right after he speaks of the rapture in chapter 4, we see in chapter 5 he makes this statement. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, here's the point, verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. So that's why we escaped the seven bowls of His wrath at the very end. He did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, We may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, as in fact, you are doing. What he's describing here is he's saying, be awake, be alert, become a mature disciple of Jesus Christ. Don't get caught off guard. We're to be awake and sober. Specifically, he's mentioning this instead of being drunk. You see, drunkenness and using drugs in, in in a way where you are no longer in control of your mind, this is actually inviting demonic activity. That's how dangerous it is, and we have to stay away from that. This is how Christians are to live, where we use God's armor in His protection, and we fight the fight His way. But look, He says, be awake, be sober, become a mature disciple. I want to read you something that I wrote some time ago about the vision of our church here at Harvest Fellowship. And uh, where it kind of explains this. It says, At Harvest Fellowship, we seek to make radical, mature disciples of Christ who advance the kingdom of God together. That's what we want to do here. But what does a radical, mature disciple look like? Radical in the dictionary means extreme, an advocate of revolution. We speak a lot about balance in Christianity, but we do not mean less extreme. We mean to be extreme about what God is extreme about without leaving anything out. I don't know if you've ever been told by somebody, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in God and all that, but you don't have to get crazy about it. Listen, 
How could you not get crazy about it? I mean, we got the awesome God, creator of the universe, on our side. He has an incredible plan. Oh, oh, oh. When it was for dinner tonight. Come on. Oh, let me read on. Okay. We are to extremely love God with our minds, and we are to extremely love God with our hearts. These two areas of love should produce extreme love for God in our actions. By radical, we also mean to be advocates of revolution. The church today has become anemic because it has become a mirror of the world. Individualistic, consumerist-oriented, no conviction on beliefs. Rather than a transformer of society, Jesus started a revolution, a total change in lifestyle, commitments, priorities, and beliefs. Now, that's radical. Mature in the dictionary means fully developed. The Greek word is teleos, which means complete, perfect, and mature. By this, we do not mean a person can arrive at a place spiritually where there is no more room for growth. Philippians 3, 12 through 16 rules that out. But we do mean that the Christian has developed to such an extent that he or she is proficient in a number of areas. And here's five of them. First of all, ethically, a mature believer is a person of character where sin is the exception to the rule in his or her life. Relationally, the radical disciple has a deep intimacy with God and a close, open relationship with those in his or her local fellowship as well as a dynamic, growing family life. Vocationally, The mature believer knows his or her spiritual gifts and passions and is actively being used by God to advance the kingdom of God in a ministry in his or her local church. Missionally, the radical disciple is regularly involved in reaching out to the lost and the poor. And overall, the mature believer has a servant's heart. That's what we want to to do here at Harvest is to make radical, mature disciples who will advance the kingdom of God together. That's what a mature Christian looks like. That's how you, what it means to stay awake, be alert. Now, if you do not desire to become a mature believer, you may not be a true believer. And that's serious. Francis Chan, in his book, Crazy Love, makes this statement. He says, when I was in high school, I seriously considered joining the Marines. This was when they first came out with commercials for the few, the proud, the Marines. What turned me off was that in those advertisements, everyone was always running. Always. And I hate running. But you know what? I didn't bother to ask if they would modify the rules for me so I could run less and maybe also do a fewer push-ups. That would have been pointless and stupid, and I knew it. Everyone knows that if you sign up for the Marines, you have to do whatever they tell you. They own you. Somehow, this realization does not cross over to our thinking about the Christian life. Jesus didn't say if you wanted to follow him, you could do it in a lukewarm manner. He said, take up your cross and follow me. And so the Christian response, but if you're not a true believer, you're not on God's side. Whose side are you on? This battle is going to take place. 
And finally, in verses 17 through 21, we see God's response, the end. Look what it says. Verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a 100 pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. God's response, here we see the very end. Now, it's not actually the end of the book of Revelation. There's still six more chapters. Clearly, what we're seeing here is he's, once again, not a a fully and complete uh, chronological order here. He's coming back. He's going to talk and develop more about these things that he's already referred to here. But he says in verse 17 at the end, it is done. That reminds us of a phrase that Jesus said on the cross. He said the very last thing he said after he experienced the wrath of God in our place, he said, it is finished signifying that he had completed the work necessary for the forgiveness of our sins, that we don't do anything for our salvation. We cannot earn it. It is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, because he did everything for us and said, it is finished. Now, that was at the the first coming, and here at the second coming, the whole plan is finished. He says, it is done. And then we see unprecedented catastrophe. We see storms, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. We see a great earthquake, worse than ever before recorded on this planet. Seemingly, it's splitting up whole land masses all over the world. This is how devastating this earthquake is going to be. We see hail, hailstones of a hundred pounds. The largest hailstone recorded was a pound and a half in history. This is hundreds, a hundred pounds. Clearly, it will kill people. Some have estimated in light of first the seals, then the, um, after the seals, the trumpets, and then the seven bowls and all of these things that pr- perhaps up to three-fourths, if not more, of the people on the planet are killed by these things. This is how devastating this will be, how catastrophic it will be in the very end. But something that I want to bring up that's not in this particular passage, but it is back in Zechariah. So we're going to go back to Zechariah chapter 14. And that is that there's still mercy. Still mercy offered. Look at Zechariah chapter 14. We'll pick up from where we left off. Verse 10. The whole land... From Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah, but Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin gate to the site of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanalel to the royal wine presses and will remain in its place. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. I want to make a statement here 
this verse has not been fulfilled yet. It has been promised that never again the city will be destroyed and Jerusalem will be secure. This verse has not been fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled at the very end. And so this is very good evidence that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. Any view that rejects that, whether it's a preterist or an amillennial perspective or whatever, they have to twist and contort verses like this so out of whack that it, it doesn't even make any sense anymore. God is not finished with the nation of Israel yet, and He has this promise. It will be inhabited, that is Jerusalem, and never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will not will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Wow. It's a, you kind of almost want a plaque with that, put it on your mantle. I actually have one made that uh, Danielle made that for me a while back, you know, but uh, anyway, all right, I'm weird. Verse 13, on that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah, too, will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, great quantities of gold, silver, and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps. Now, look, here's where the grace comes. Here's where the mercy, verse 16. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. He's referring here now to the time of the millennium, the thousand-year reign that we'll get to when we get to Revelation chapter 20, but we see that it's an actual time period. But notice here, there's going to be survivors Not everybody is killed. Now, certainly all the armies are killed. We'll see that in chapter 19. And many, many, many people are destroyed from all of the plagues and so forth. But here we see the survivors of the nations will actually have another opportunity to put their trust in Christ. And if you can imagine it, living for a thousand years with Jesus ruling the nations, with Jesus showing us how we should have done it, how we could have had a peaceful planet, my guess is most of them are going to put their trust in Christ. So we'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 20. But I want to read something, once again, from the commentary uh, on, on Zechariah. He says, The Bible assures us that all nations will worship King Jesus. In verses 16 through 19, Zechariah prophesies that all the survivors who did not die at the Battle of Armageddon will celebrate the Festival of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, annually. Since Jesus will destroy all the soldiers of the nations that come against Jerusalem at the Battle of Armageddon, these survivors are those who did not engage in the attack. 
Instead, they are non-combatant citizens of the nations that had attacked God's people. Along with the people of Israel, they will come to Jerusalem in each year for the festival of booze, which was a celebration of the harvest. It was a time of giving thanks and praise to the Lord. Verses 17 through 19 tell us that any nation that refuses to worship King Jesus will suffer drought. Specifically, the text warns against Egypt refusing to come and to worship Jesus. Egypt, depending on the overflowing of the Nile to irrigate its crops, with no rain, the river will not flood and the fields would dry up and die. Then he gives this illustration. He says, I heard about a high school football game where the home team was losing terribly. They could not close the gap in the score no matter what they did. The clock was about to run out. Everyone was discouraged, and the coach was frustrated. Then he looked over to see all the cheerleaders for his team sitting on the grass, their pom-poms down beside them. Their heads were hung low. Irritated, the coach ran over to the cheerleaders and said, Girls, don't you think that our team would do better if you girls would stand up on the sidelines and cheer? The head cheerleader looked up and as sincerely as she could said, Coach, I think our team would do better if we girls would go out on the field and play. (laughs) Maybe you've seen a game like that when victory becomes not just unlikely but humanly impossible. That will be the story in the last days for God's people. The whole world, led by a satanic ruler, empowered by the devil himself, will be bearing down not only on the little sliver of land called Israel, but on the one city, Jerusalem. The attack will be such that it will be humanly impossible for anything to happen other than defeat. And then Jesus will show up. He will place his feet on the Mount of Olives and he will change the game. We get to see the Mount of Olives as well. The same thing that's true for Israel in its last days is true for followers of Jesus right now. When defeat is absolutely inevitable, when victory is humanly impossible, Jesus shows up. He's the game changer. For followers of Jesus, victory is on the same road as defeat. Victory is just a little further on down the road. So if you're being defeated right now, be assured, based on the Word of God, your victory is sure in Jesus Christ. Because of His coming, we can have certain victory and the greatest hope. But the question is, whose side are you on? Your eternal destiny is at stake. You do not want to make a mistake here. Jesus encouraged us to count the cost and then make a decision. 35 years ago, I surrendered to Jesus as Lord. I made a decision and I have never looked back. The road is sometimes extremely rough, but it is worth it. Jesus died for you. Will you live for him? Whose side are you on? Let's pray. Father, we praise you. You are worthy of all honor, glory, praise. We exist for you. And we are most satisfied when we rest in you. You are truly wonderful, good, awesome. Such a blessing to us. Your plan is perfect. And we want to get in on it. 
We don't want to make our own plans. We recognize that you are the Lord. And from the beginning to the end, you have a magnificent plan. That when we fight against it, we end up hurting ourselves. But when we get in, in your plan, many times it's not easy. But yes, it is good always. So teach us, especially about how your plan ends in the book of Revelation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.